Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, guest host Dr. David Petker talks with Dr. Richard Harvey about his article, Topography of Polyp Recurrence in Eosinophilic Chronic Rhinosinusitis. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by Carl Stores. Carl Stores enables anywhere care with the new flexible slimline video rhino laryngoscope, ideal for narrow airways or anxious and pain-sensitive patients. The new Telepac Plus enables an improved clinician experience through a large HD display and a small footprint in the already compact office and clinic space. Integrated recording and playback enhances patient and family education and leads to greater patient satisfaction. The new Slimline Video Rhino Laryngoscope, coupled with the new Telepac Plus, enables diagnostic and post-acute visualization anywhere please visit www.carlstores.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. Uh, my name is David Petker. I'm your guest host. And today I'll be interviewing Richard Harvey regarding his paper, Topography of Polyp Recurrence in Eosinophilic Chronic Rhinosinusitis, which is available currently on the IFAR website. Richard, welcome and thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, David. How are things with you? Good, thank you. Obviously caught up in the COVID environment at the moment, uh, but making our way through it with sensible logic and uh, a sound approach. Good, good. Well, I know you've uh, you've contributed to the Doc Matters comments, and I thank you for doing that. It's nice having some uh, true world experts weighing in on that. Before we get started with the paper, I've got a question for you. Are you familiar with the term walk-up music? No, you'll have to explain okay. it to me. Even, even though I... I did go to school in the States many years yeah. ago. I don't know this one, so tell me. So, well, you probably know the, the premise, but, and maybe they do it in other sports, but in, in baseball, when a batter is about to come up and hit, frequently over the public address system, they will play some music, and it's usually the, the beginning of a song or some sort of fast-paced song to, to try to get the crowd pumped up and, and psyched up about this batter coming up. And so I was driving in this morning and I heard a song on the radio and I thought, this would be perfect walk-up music for Richard Harvey. And so I don't know if this will work or not, and I'm sure you're going to recognize this right away, but I'm going to try to play a little walk-up music for you before we get started on this interview, okay? Uh, Here it I'm goes. Keen. I'm keen. I thought that was a perfect Richard Harvey ACDC walk-up song. I liked it. Thank you, David. You could have gone right. anywhere in that direction. I'm so happy where you went, so that's fine. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad. You've got to be careful with some of those songs. You know, James Taylor is not such a great walk-up musician. But All right, so tell me about, uh, tell me about the study. What I, I can guess, but tell me about the impetus for this study. What got you interested in, in looking at the topography or, or the recurrence where these, these polyps show up again? So I think we should make it clear here that the population of patients we assessed. The new EPOS 2020 guidelines gives a brand new classification of sinus disease away from polyps, non-polyps, and it describes primary CRS, meaning sinus disease that's not secondary to another process in the body, diffuse disease, which is usually where it involves multiple sinus cavities or the entire upper airway, 
and Th2 dominant disease, which is essentially eosinophilic disease. So this is really a study on primary diffuse Th2 dominant sinus disease as per the new classification or, or eosinophilic chronic rhinosinusitis. And David, I guess we know from this type of disease phenotype or clinical entity that's been described over the years that it's not a disorder of plumbing or ventilation or blockage or osteal occlusion. This is really an inflammatory disorder of the airway in which most patients have broader inflammatory changes in their airway, such as asthma. So the way we manage this condition is very different from when I was a resident. You know, we, we don't simply just take the polyps out. We, we don't do surgery along the lines of osteal occlusion disease. We really create a simple sinus cavity, and then we use corticosteroid usually irrigation, but there are other ways of delivering it into the sinus cavity to manage what is an inflammatory disorder. Now, we've been doing this for many years, as I think most people are now, but we don't cure everyone. So we looked into two factors here. Of those who have polyp recurrence, where exactly do they come from and how many people also ended up needing systemic treatment? And so this study was really taking out the patients who needed systemic treatment, and, and that's hidden a little bit in the text. We certainly put it in there, but there was about 5.5% of patients that went on and used permanent systemic treatment, mostly now biologics, and they're taken out because they're not really a study of local control anymore. They're, they're really patients using systemic treatment to control their disease. And then in this study, we had about 6% of patients that had polyp recurrence. And so that's an overall failure rate of about 11% in my patients, which I think is always higher than one imagines when you do your own audit. But it shows, I think, that we're getting much better control of this condition than we did when, say, I was a resident 10 years ago. So, you know, 88% of patients get control with local treatment. For those who fail, we set out to say to us, where do they fail? Because we've seen a trend anecdotally that mostly the upper ethmoid and frontal seem to be the area where polyps started to come back initially. And so that's what this study was all about. And that's basically what you found also. The frontals and the ethmoids were the most common place to fail. Exactly. So, so what we wanted to describe then here was where do those polyps come back? And then some other cofactors here that, you know, were they more symptomatic, those patients? Did they utilize treatments? more or less than the patients who were well-controlled. You know, what were the sort of factors that led to that polyp failure? And then within that polyp group, yes, we described the distribution. And although patients do fail in the maxillary and the sphenoid sinus at high rates, almost universally, I think about 50% failed in the maxillary and sphenoid, but 100% failed in the, in the frontal and ethmoid. And, and perhaps reading between the lines of the data here, they do fail in the lower ethmoid. They fail sort of in the ethmoid roof and the frontal sinus. And so this was one factor. I, if you wanted me to highlight the other things that I think are important from this study is that, as you would expect, those who had polyp recurrence used more oral corticosteroids. I don't think there's any surprises there. They were certainly more symptomatic at baseline and, and at last follow-up. We couldn't really show that they necessarily had a higher-grade eosinophilia, uh, nor serum eosinophilia but uh, they certainly use more oral steroids. One thing I feel as a, as a surgeon was that perhaps the patients who failed and had polyp recurrence, now we're not talking about just where they failed, but those who had polyp potentially might have been less compliant with their treatment, David. And I, and I think we feel that sometimes, but I actually couldn't show that in the data. So I, I do think there's a set of patients here that 
are very compliant with local care but just simply don't get control of their disease with local treatments alone. So mm-hmm. despite compliance, topical therapy alone just doesn't suppress their disease process enough. And this is not surprising because we see people with asthma. There is a group of patients who have asthma in which they're compliant with their medication, but they just simply don't get great control with inhaled corticosteroids alone. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the potential explanations for those failures that you listed, but tell me how you enrolled these patients. You know, you defined the patients as classified as either CRS with nasal polyps or CRS without nasal polyps. That's that's what you had said no. in the methods. No, no, we but, didn't, David, actually. We actually used eCRS patients. Right. So this is my, my lead-in. So we only took patients who had high tissue eosinophilia, greater okay. than 10 eosinophils for high-powered field, and we intentionally didn't use polyp, non-polyp as a classification because I think that category, David, is essentially dead and done in our literature. Now, I know that's going to be a big task to move the establishment away, but only 78% of our patients had polyps extruding from the middle meatus despite having eosinophilic disease. So I think this idea of using polyps and non-polyps now is we've, we've intentionally not classified them this way. We've classified them as eosinophilic patients. So how did you know that they were eosinophilic before surgery? If you hadn't uh, no. done surgery, you didn't have the pathology reports. These are all patients who've had surgery and been okay. put on a corticosteroid irrigation. And very fortuitously for our practice, we've been collecting tissue analysis for more than a decade. Okay. So we're able to retrospectively, David, classify mm-hmm. these patients into eosinophilic patients or non-eosinophilic patients. Or as we should say in the new EPOS 2020 guidelines, TH2 dominant diffuse disease. Okay, that makes more, more sense to me. Now, as far as the procedures that they got, obviously we talked about the common cavity, and I know that 57% of the patients underwent draft 3, and, and you mentioned that they had a draft 3 if their anterior to posterior dimension was less than a centimeter. Is there anything else that you used to guide you as far as when you should do the draft 3? Was it more of a gestalt? Was there something more objective, or was it just that measurement? And you just said if that measurement is too narrow, boom, you, you drilled them out. How we did the common cavity is certainly one area that, that there's a bit of bias here because traditionally we, we had a bit of a rule of this one centimeter approach. Over time, it's evolved for us. I will utilize for people who do not have central compartment atopic disease who are clearly just plain old eosinophilic CRS, I almost always use a draft three now in their management. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you can read between the lines here, there's, there's sort of 50 or 60% of my patients are revision patients anyway. So fair enough, you know, that, that might be appropriate in some hands. But I, I do it for primary patients because I, I do think that they, they fail in the frontal over time and I, my, I feel like my results are better creating a wider cavity into the frontal sinus. Mm-hmm. And so who got a draft and who didn't? It, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I, I, we put the guideline as to what we've used, but this, like you said, there's a bit of surgeon's preference that has evolved over time and that's probably about since 2012 we've been starting to change our thinking about how we set these patients up for local care because that's what it is in our mind we're we're really just setting the patient up for local care and and just creating a a wide opening into the sinus cavity and and in regards to the funnel it often means the draft three is sort of what's in our mind and our strategy our philosophy of trying to get 
these patients right. Now, what about the medial, the modified medial maxillectomy? Because I've, I've heard you speak before and you talked about the sinus acting as a sump and you have to do that. What made you decide to do the medial maxillectomy on, on some patients? I rarely do, or I less commonly do, I should say, a medial maxillectomy. Mm -hmm. Because to me, the difference in size between an, a wide antrostomy and medial maxillectomy is much less than, say, a draft 2A and a low drop or a draft 3. Going from a draft 2A to a low drop is, is an enormous increase in frontal sinus access. We're going from a well-performed antrostomy is, is less so. These two factors for eosinophilic patients are a little bit different, I think, David, when it comes to the issues of something. So we usually do it for two reasons. Mucus plugging is one. So you'll see patients who end up plugging their maxillary sinus with eosinophilic mucin. It's not mm -hmm. surprising this happens. It happens in the lower airway. People get eosinophilic mucin plugs in eosinophilic asthma. And I think we see this phenomenon in the airway. And I, and I think people have big, deep maxillary sinuses are a little bit at risk of this. And then I think the other factor that comes into play here, as you've mentioned, the thumping factor, even when you get some of these patients open and you get corticosteroid into their sinus cavity, their maxillary sinus, after years and years and years of inflammation, just doesn't work properly. The mucociliary clearance, despite good control of inflammation, ends up leaving secretions that just pool in the thump or dependent part of the maxillary sinus. And, and if we see that happening, we will do a medial maxillectomy. So perhaps even more heterogeneously than the way we practice draft three, medial maxillectomy is even more varied because it's based on these two factors. People who get mucus plugging, people who get thumping, and then patients who come to us who've had all sorts of weird things done. They've had inferior medial antrostomies, there's a big hole through the inferior turbinate, there's uh, potential right. mucus recirculation issues. In, in, once you have a medial lateral nasal wall or medial wall of maxilla that looks like that, then we convert mm -hmm. it to a medial maxillectomy. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, another question that I had for you was the steroid washes. And in the manuscript, you talked about uh, using one milligram of budesonide or betamethasone in the washes. Now, those are two very different corticosteroids with very different systemic absorptions and potencies. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. How often do you, are you using the betamethasone versus the budesonide? So to me, budesonide and betamethasone are two traditional solutions. They are both first-generation corticosteroids, so they don't undergo high first-pass metabolism. So when you swallow it, it's not like mometasone, seclesonide, fluticasone which have a high, uh, bio, or a high level of metabolism and low bioavailability. So they're sort of in the same zone. If you look at the glucocorticoid affinity tables, they're very close, David. You know, they're in the uh, relative to baseline, which I think is prednisone. They're about the 1,500 to 1 on the glucocorticoid affinity. I'm not sure what the difference, but if you look at those charts about glucocorticoid affinity, this is how well they bind, how tightly they bind to the glucocorticoid mm -hmm. receptors. They're about the 1,500 mark, both of them. So they're not as high as mymetazone and things like that, but, but, they, but, they're, but they're in the same ballpark as each other. We almost see them as interchangeable. And although some of these patients might have been on some of our mymetazone trials and things like that, this was, for most people, their routine management. And, and, so and in Australia, you... it's got to do with access. You say, why do one sure. get one and not the other? Budesonide yeah. is available for those people in Australia who have concomitant clinical asthma, and betamethasone is often used for those who don't have asthma that fulfill the guidelines to allow them to get a script for budesonide. 
it's a bit based on my availability and our pharmaceutical benefit scheme, what allows them access, rather than clinical factors. So, uh, moving on to you know the explanations, and so you talked about the the 11% uh, failure rate, and you gave three potential explanations for that. And the first one, well, actually the third one, we'll jump to that was the patient compliance. And so that's what I always question. We've all seen the patients that that feel cured after the surgery; they're breathing so much better than they have for a long time, and almost seems like it's human nature to slack off a little bit. I know your data didn't show that, but at the same time, you know, it's hard to know if they're truly using some of those medications, right? You bet. You bet. We didn't take diaries here. So we should just be clear, it's about a 6% failure rate on those using local treatment alone. And the 5% that is people who've gone on to biologics. And I think we all agree that there's a certain proportion of our patients that declare themselves you know, almost prior to surgery, you know, they have asthma that's not well controlled with local therapies. And so they're almost certainly going down the pathway of systemic. So so of the 6% then who are only using topical care with maybe occasional intermittent treatment, they seem to be pretty compliant. Actually, they erred, not non-significant, but it erred on the higher side. And it wasn't certainly heading in the direction of being less. Mm-hmm. But you're right, we didn't take patient diaries. So these are self-reported compliance. But I actually think, although there are some some people in there who tell me they're using and I know they're not because they have that, David, you know, can't remember their medication name or they haven't hit anyone up for a script in a long time. I mean, you can sort of tell those patients. I do think, though, probably with the group as a whole, it's probably accurate. You know, I think that there are some very compliant patients here, but they fail in the the frontal and ethmoid regardless. Mm -hmm. Another explanation was the limited access of the topical medications to the area. How do you remedy that? That makes sense, a lot of sense to me. You know, getting the, the washes up to the frontal sinus, up to the anterior ethmoids, the most superior portion of the sinus cavity, that makes sense to me, but how do you fix that? It's a tricky one because there's probably three components to this. So the first one is just access of delivery. So Henry Barham did a study with us that we looked at Back in the day when we were trying to work out, you know, should we be doing low drops on primary patients with inflammatory disease? You know, how much better is it then or not than a draft 2A? So when we did that study on cadavers, doing a draft 2A, then a 3, then looking at different irrigation bottles and head positions, putting the head down and vertex to floor and all these things helped a little bit. But the biggest factor was really the surgical opening. If you mm-hmm. created a big opening, the irrigation really got in there pretty well. And it's not just the delivery of the drug, it's also the force, the sheer force of the drug so to remove thick eosinophilic secretions that often occur in these patients. So really, size of opening trumps all other factors, head position, everything else. Then the type of delivery device makes a difference. So we really found that high-volume irrigation, greater than 100 mils, and I think Peter Wormald's group looked at this as well and showed that you need a decent volume because it has to fill the nasal cavity first before you get spillover into the sinus cavity. And so high volume irrigations was the one way in which you could guarantee that the dead space of the nasal passage was filled and you definitely got sinus distribution. So you have to use a big bottle. You can't use little bottles to deliver in a little tiny volumes. Mm -hmm. And then finally, one factor we don't have control of at the moment, which is this concept for local drug delivery is mucosal residence time. So this is how long does the drug stay in contact with the mucosa? Because all these agents have different lipophilic characteristics, how well they penetrate the mucosa or how long they stick around. 
is very different to different, different people and different drugs. For us at the moment, that's probably the biggest factor. Now, I've got colleagues, especially my Indian colleagues, who use these treatments, but they have their patients really hang or put their head in a dependent position for five or ten minutes so that the drug has a chance to absorb. And I, I haven't yet really felt strongly enough with my patients that's something that we need to do. But I think that the study, the, the outcomes of this study suggest that maybe that might be appropriate, that they have to do it with positioning, so it, it sits on the ethmoid roof in front all for a bit longer, or we have to design a topical carrier that hangs on to the mucosal lining against gravity. And that's one of the reasons why we believe the ethmoid and frontal is more involved. Not just access, not just delivery, but this issue that maybe contact time here is just very small. Yet you get it very good in the Magdalene sphenoid. And so this is one area that I still still think needs further research, certainly an area to explore. Yeah, fascinating. What about the theory that the disease activity is higher in the frontal and the ethmoids? I'm not convinced, mm-hmm. though. You know, I know we see this. I'm not convinced yet that that's the case. Okay. One of the problems we have, obviously, David, in that situation is that there are disease entities that people describe almost as a mixed bag within polyps. So central compartment atopic disease is a totally different group, and potentially my study here even is muddled by some of these patients in here because we have not selected those patients out well in previous publications, but we are doing so in future studies because their polyp disease, data, as you know, is very much related around the ethmoid turbinate septum. So that's where they get disease because it's an inhaling allergy issue. But I think in the true non-allergic, non-CCAD, eosinophilic or TH2 diffuse disease patients, I'm not convinced that one part of the sinus cavity is more immunologically active than another part. But it's a fascinating issue because obviously that's the other explanation, isn't it, of why maybe the ethmoid roof and frontal is more involved. But yeah, it is. It is. And then there are studies that people have done of topographic biopsying and they've really failed to show that there's necessarily right. more disease activity. So what do you think the take-home of this is? Should, should we all be doing more draft threes, you think, to facilitate delivery of the medications to those areas? I think there's probably three take-home messages here. Uh, I think the first one is that we need to classify our patients better. And uh-huh. so this idea that if a patient has diffuse disease that's TH2 dominant, then you've got to start thinking about what you know. What why are you doing the surgical treatment? What are you achieving? I, I know in the states there's some part of the ENT profession is even ballooning some of these patients. I, I can't think of a less scientifically ground basis for, for treating these patients. But we have to start thinking about what what are we doing, you know? And, and that's that issue about it's all about setting these patients up for anti-inflammatory care. I think we then have to say to well, if we're going to do this type of surgery. I think you have to take each patient and look at them and say, you know, how active are they and what sinuses do I really need to focus to make sure that that is widely open? And then have that discussion in one surgical plan in mind of, you know, do they need a medial maxillectomy? Do they need a low trough as part of that intervention? Rather than just simply doing a standard approach for everyone and when they fail, then you do something else. And then third, the, you know, the take-home message here is that with a neosinus cavity and topical care, you should get control of a large proportion of your patients. 6% should fail on topical, and, and in my practice, another 5 or 6% fail and need systemic treatment. But, you know, we should see about 90%, 80, 8 to 90% of patients get good control with topical therapy. Now, 
I think biologic companies don't want to hear that. They would like us to be failing 50% of the time. But that's not really borne out in, in studies. And so I think if, if someone's practice is slipping into about 50% of patients going on to biologics, I mean, unless there's a big skew in the patients you're seeing, maybe we can, one should go back and have a look at the other factors that may be affecting topical delivery and the sinus cavity itself. Is it, is it open enough? Is the patient maybe set up well enough to manage with local treatments? And, and this is where we're sort of heading, I think, the messages in this paper. Well, it's great stuff. You know, I always really enjoy reading papers coming out of your department, so thanks very much for continuing to do that. Before we wrap up, I've just got a couple questions for you. I'm sure you get this often, particularly here in the United States a lot, and a lot of our colleagues know you well. Most of our knowledge and understanding of Australia comes from TV and movies. I know very little about the actual culture and and those sorts of things, so I've got some questions for you. Hopefully, you will help me and and some of our listeners understand a little bit more about Australia. So the first question, when was the last time you used the term crikey? It's about as often as I say, I'll throw another shrimp on the barbie. Oh, that was was one of the questions. (laughs) And last time I had a schooner of fosters. Now, have you ever eaten at an Outback Steakhouse? Do you know what? My first time eating at an Outback Steakhouse was in Charleston, Carolina. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and the Bloomin' Onion. I love the Bloomin' Onion, but yeah, they're delicious. Dish. Um, <laughs> that is a salmon right. dish, if I was to say, an American salmon dish. And when was the last time you said these words in this sequence? Good day, mate. Now, that is actually utilized all the time. Good day. Using the word mate is very Australian, and you'll find that people of all walks of life in Australia say that. Have you said that today? Yeah, even this morning. Gardeners came around. Excellent. All right, well, that's good. That's good news, To uh, good information to dispel some falsehoods. Well, Richard, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know it's early in the morning on your time, so I can't thank you enough. With that... On behalf of Richard Harvey, thank you very much for listening to Scope It Out, and tune in again next month. Thanks for listening. Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley. All opinions in this podcast are those of podcast hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors.